Welcome to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. I'm glad you found us. My name is Tony Piles, and I'm the pastor here. I pray this recording brings you encouragement and growth in Christ, and we would love for you to join us in person anytime you are in town. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for our current schedule of worship and Bible studies. And may God bring you blessing through what you're about to hear. Thank you. First Samuel 24, uh, as we are continuing in the text, of course, there's ice cream too. I wrote that down so I wouldn't forget to tell you. I think everybody heard that part. But a couple of things we've been watching uh, and talking about as we read the text together and talk about it over the last few weeks. One is the, is the doctrine of providence and the, the interplay between what God has decreed that he will bring to pass and then what people do and the ways that they, in fact, bring to pass what God has decreed. So we'll, we'll see more of that in this text as we talk about it. Um, but just to, to describe just in general terms what we mean by, by providence, uh, I'll read the, the first section of the chapter on providence from the Westminster Confession. It says, God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge, and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. That's a really big picture description. What do we mean by providence? A a way to capture that is not one hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father who is in heaven. Everything is under God's complete control. From the movement of planets, I, I saw earlier today an article about the solar eclipse that's coming up in April where we're a few hundred miles from the zone that'll be total eclipse which is going to pass right over Dallas that's going to be really interesting um I don't think it's passing over Chicago that's good no but God's God's in control of the movement of heavenly bodies and he's in control of the movements of electrons in orbit around the nucleus of every atom, not to mention the subatomic particles. All of that is under his control. And it's it's not that he uses the same means of control over every aspect of his creation. There's, There's great variety, right? That was captured in the phrase, uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things. And yet there's nothing outside the scope of his dominion as the king overall, right? Not just the, the, the change of the seasons, but the actions of individuals. So that God is able to announce something and bring it about because he's the king and everything is under his control. And what we're seeing unfold over several chapters in Samuel is the Lord decrees something 
And then people are like, well, that ain't never going to happen. And they do everything they can to keep that from happening. And under God's government, the things that they do to keep it from happening, in fact, serve. Bring it about. So that's something to continue to keep our eye on. We also, all throughout Samuel, we have this question of the monarchy. And from the very beginning, um, and we've talked about how it, it stretches back at least as far as Deuteronomy, even Jacob's blessing of his children in Genesis. But the driving question in Samuel, especially in this period of transition between Saul and David, is will we have a king who will rule God's way? Or will we continue to have kings who come along and try and rule their way in defiance of what God has commanded for the kings? And that's going to loom large over this chapter and the next few as, as David has been anointed but is not enthroned. Will he try and seize the throne through means outside of what God has commanded. We'll watch for that. And then wrapped up with that is the question of Israel's security. And we can think of that a couple of ways. One is the king is supposed to protect Israel from their enemies. And in particular, the king's supposed to deliver them from the Philistines. So one question we have with Saul that we've seen in the last couple of chapters, if Saul continues to chase David instead of defend the nation, what will become of them? And we've seen David already do some things, even though he's not king, that do see to Israel's security in the midst of that. But on a second level, and we see this as we move forward, especially in the book of Kings, is as the king goes, so goes the nation. We see that in some ways with Saul. We'll see that very clearly later what will that mean for David and David's reign once he, once he finally gets there? And what does it mean for Israel in this time where they're kind of between one king and another? Can they be protected? Can they be secure? Will God keep them under his care despite the, the mess they're in with the monarchy? So, so let's keep these things before us. Why don't we pause and pray, and then we'll, we'll read chapter 24, and we'll talk about these and, and other things as they come up. Lord, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for ice cream. We thank you for cooler weather. We thank you for coffee. We thank you for your word and a community in which we can read your word together and reflect and discuss and ask questions and draw connections and read more and Lord willing, emerge from evenings like this more in love with you and built up in our love for one another. Lord, we pray that our time together this evening would serve those ends, that as we read and discuss your word together, we would grow in our love for you, that we would grow in our love for your church, that we would grow in our love for one another. We ask these things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, 1 Samuel 24. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel 
and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Right. What do you see? What questions do you have? It's a lot Saul kind of saying at this point. Now, where's the harmful spirit? I mean, Saul has a perfect chance to just turn around and smite David. Not that that would work very well in the sight of his men. 
in this instance, but. But later, he continues chasing David. Yes, there's this beautiful ambiguity. When's the last time you heard ambiguities described as beautiful? At, at the end of the chapter, right? And there, there are several layers to it. One is David is professing his complete innocence. And you'll notice that Saul's response is, all, is much more restricted. Saul talks about this day. David talks about his complete innocence with regard to all of these things. See, there's no treason in my hand. And Saul talks about how David has treated him today. And then presses David to make an oath. Of course, David's already made an oath that secures what Saul wants with Jonathan. But Saul doesn't know that. And then at the end of the chapter, although they seem to have made peace, there's an uneasiness on both sides. As Saul has pressed these layers of commitment from David, and then, and then he goes back. I'm looking at the end of the wrong chapter. There we go. Saul went home, and David does not. David goes back to a stronghold, right? Like, I made it. I'm safe from Saul now, but I'm not going to go live in some unprotected village. And I'm certainly not going to go back to Benjamin. And what else? By making him swear not to cut off his offsprings, is he referring to kill him or is he asking that the inheritance continue? Good question. Um, there's, there's layers to it. Uh, and we've already, we know from Jonathan from the previous chapter that, that Saul knows that David's going to be king. And in this chapter, we hear it from Saul. Saul tells David, I know now that you will surely be king, that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. Usually that means that the next, right, the one who succeeds, if it's a different dynasty, we've talked about this a bit, like he cuts off every remainder of the, of the entire family of his predecessor so that there are no other claimants to the throne. And I think that's the primary sphere of Saul's concern. But wrapped up with that, not so much um, royal service, but the whole question of, of his family's inheritance, um, where's the land going to go, their possession in Israel, all that belonged to Saul's father, quite apart from the monarchy, right? The idea of having your father's house wiped out within Israel is, is terrifying. And so Saul's worried about both of those things. He doesn't want, even as we've seen and we've talked about, Saul has become more and more like the kings of any of the surrounding nations. He's terrified at the thought that David might treat his house in the way that any of the kings of the surrounding nations would do as they ascend to the throne. So, and we, it's not just that we see that happen broadly in the ancient Near East. We have examples of that um, within the Old Testament. But Judges 9 verse 5, so Gideon has died and his son by the concubine is ascending to the throne 
And so it says in chapter 9, verse 5, he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone, except for the one, except for the one who escapes, right? He wants to secure the throne for himself. And so he slaughters, never mind that they're half brothers, right? He kills every competitor. Uh, and we see a similar thing in 2 Kings, 2 Kings 10 and 11 with Jehu, right? Jehu just goes around assassinating everybody, but especially he slaughters Ahab's descendants. So Jehu's been prophesied to put an end to Ahab's house and to take over the throne of Israel. And so in doing that, Jehu slaughters all of Ahab's descendants. That's in chapter 10 of 2 Kings. Uh, and then Athaliah does something similar when she comes to the throne of Judah and she slaughters everyone except for the young son who's hidden in the temple whom she doesn't know about. This doesn't typically happen in the modern world. We can make arguments or analogies about imprisoning political opponents and such as modern parallels usually, at least in first world nations, there's a lot less bloodshed. But we, we wouldn't have to go very far back in history to find people killing their opponents instead. And we probably wouldn't have to go too far afield even in our modern period. How many Bolsheviks killed all the czars and heirs? Well, yeah. yeah, and the whole succession within the Soviet Union from one leader to the next as they become less and less trusting. Oh, and I meant to correct this. A few weeks ago, I talked about Herod and one of the emperors making the comment about Herod. It was actually Augustus, and it's based on a pun with Greek words that it's safer to be his pig than his son because Herod was probably going mad and believed every whisper he heard and was suspicious of everyone around him and murdered his own sons as well as several other relatives and even a wife at one point because he believed that they were trying to take his throne. Hence Augustus far removed, probably apocryphal, but passed down with some glee by the Romans, a remark supposedly attributed to him. Yeah. Was Herod a Jew? Now, if you asked Herod that question, he would say, why, yes. If you asked the Jews that question, they would say, absolutely not. So he spent a great deal of time in Rome. He was from Idumea, so the Roman name for the territory of Edom. But that encompassed of the South territory that used to belong to Judah. So ethnically, culturally, he's kind of on the border of can he legitimately call himself a Jew or not, but he's thoroughly has one foot planted in the Roman world with the result that basically everybody hated him. The Romans didn't trust him, although they found him politically useful and the Jews didn't trust him. Uh, although they were happy to leverage him against the Romans. And he, he was a skillful politician before he started kind of coming to pieces because um, he knew Jewish culture and was able to prevent some, some things from happening. 
it would have resulted in mass slaughter. It just was delayed a few generations, honestly. But since he knew Jewish culture, he was able to help the Romans not make huge mistakes. Doesn't mean the Romans didn't do it on purpose later, but um, like for instance, the Romans brought in military standards that had images, right? Like an eagle or like an image of the emperor. Pilate did that and Herod was able to intervene and talk with Pilate. Several times something similar had been tried. I think with Pilate in particular, actually, that wasn't when Herod intervened. That was when he told the Jews, look, if you don't shut up about this and go home, I'm going to kill you. And they pulled out their swords and handed them to the Romans. And so Pilate was like, you know what? Never mind. Maybe this was a bad idea. We played chicken and I lost. So as a broad characterization for how one reign succeeding another usually treats the people they're ousting from power in broad terms across human history, but specifically within the context of Saul reigning like neighboring kings and being terrified that David would do the same. Is it significant that he identified him as David this time? Because so many times before, he said the son of Jesse. Yes. Is yes. It significant? Or in other words, that's part of the acknowledgement that he would be king. Yes. I think that's part of it. And part of it, too, is is David does two things. You see David move the conversation that direction. When David first approaches him, he calls him my Lord. Looking at verse eight, my Lord, the King. And then Saul turns around. And as he continues to address him, right? Still in the third person in verse 10, right? I will not put out my hand against my Lord. But in verse 11, he presses that closer. So he's recognizing his position, recognizing that Saul is still the king who's in authority and put there by the Lord, anointed by the Lord. But in verse 11, he presses his more personal relationship with Saul. Remember, Saul's his father-in-law. And in verse 11, he addresses him as my father. And so Saul responds in kind. Is this your voice? Verse 16, is this your voice, my son, David? And you're right. I think that's a really important observation that for the last several chapters, Saul has refused to even name his name. He's called him the son of Jesse. And we talked about how in some of those contexts, clearly that's a way of kind of taking him down a peg uh, in the eyes of the people he's talking about David with. But here in this intense, intimate, personal moment, he calls him by name and calls him my son in response to that address, my father. Doesn't he have 300 people with him? How would it be private? You're right. That's a big question, actually. It's it's 3,000, 3,000 men, whereas David has 600, right? So David's outnumbered five to one. But we're a little bit confused about where everybody else is. I seriously doubt Saul took 3,000 people to the bathroom with him. And... And although the cave is big enough to be a sheepfold and to be a place you could go to the bathroom in some privacy and able to hide David and his men, we don't know if that's David and all 600 or David and his captains, right? David and a select guard. And so 
as this scene unfolds between David and Saul, certainly there are at least some other people there. But we don't know that that's necessarily in the sight and hearing of the whole host of both sides. To me, the whole story is about the scriptural reminder that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And it's once again the story of trust and obey. And God's timing, not ours. And how a leader that demonstrates the acknowledgement of the anointing of the invisible father of the universe. And here's this adversary that's pursued him physically, uncomfortably. Then for David to demonstrate this to his mighty men of valor, probably, to demonstrate that and then fall prostrate on the ground, prostrate or prostrate, anyway, on the ground, and, and acknowledge the anointed king of Israel. What leadership is that? But follow that a little more slowly. Because it's, that's the big picture, but it's, it's unfolding is a little more complex. <laughs> Two R's, by the way. Prostrate is the word you were looking for. Let's go with on his face. That particular phrasing is not where the humor lies, but there definitely is some eschatological humor here. In the way the, the, the narrator has set this up, right? Because Saul thinks he's by himself, right? Yeah, on his throne, right? Um, and our, our English translations are so very delicate in the way that they phrase. He went into the cave to relieve himself. He's not looking for a cool place to lay down and take a nap. The Hebrew phrase is he covered his feet. In other words, he sat down for his afternoon meditation, and he's going to be in there a while, right? Reading the Sears catalog or whatever. And the, and the narrator is absolutely using that. To, to make fun of Saul, but also to point out how incredibly vulnerable he is. And that also maybe provides a little explanation for how he could not notice David sneak it up on him. He's a little busy. But there's, David has an internal struggle that we should pay attention to because there's more going on than is immediately apparent to us, right? So Saul goes in, he covers his feet, and then the narrator tells us, by the way, David and his men were hiding in there. And look at what his, his men tell him, right? And the, some of our English translations make this sound as though the Lord had said something previously. That's not quite the direction that the men are taking it. Like, look, today, now, in this moment, the Lord is telling you. And we, we do this. Right? We look at an opportunity that presents itself, something that we're able to do in the moment, and we read that as God telling us to do it. Right? It's an open door. God must want me to do this. And that's what David's men are telling him. Like, look, here's your enemy right here, practically laying down with a sword on his neck saying, here I am. This is your chance to end it. David, this is God telling you, seize the day. This is the moment. You can be king this afternoon. Look at how the Lord has orchestrated this for you, David. But this is the danger in trying to read the book of Providence, we might say, 
without attention to God's word. Because God will never open doors for us to do something and call us to do something that is, on the other hand, violating his commandments. And so David has this struggle on a couple of levels. One is, is his men are saying, hey, here's your chance, David. God wants you to do this. And David knows better than that. But what does he do? What does he do in the next verse? And notice his men are a little less crass than saying, kill him now. Instead, they say, do what seems good in your eye. <laughs> That's always a good thing, right? Yeah, no, no. But what does David do in the second, like the last sentence in verse four? He cuts off the corner of Saul's rope. Cuts off the corner of Saul's rope. And then he feels guilty. Why? Because this was God's anointing. Well, does that have to do anything? This is a coat, right? In the corner of his coat, right? Is it, is it because he knows his tailor and knows how much that costs? And was like, man, I shouldn't have done that. I need to, I need to write him a check. I guess he, it was that natural man that wanted proof. Here's physical, visual, natural proof. I was there, you know. I mean, I guess, I, I don't know. What's the significance of the rope? It was the robe that distinguished him as the king. This is the robe of the king. We've seen this word robe comes up a few places. Uh, A robe was among the things that Jonathan took off and put on David. Um, We don't see the word robe, but we did see a couple of chapters previously. Saul stripped of his clothes and laying down prophesying. As, as the Lord uh, averted his attempt to pursue David, but he was disrobed. We see it in some other places as well. So this, and it goes back to Samuel, because when Saul was finally, fully, ultimately, personally rejected, and Samuel delivered that word and then turned to walk away, what happened? Saul grabbed Samuel's robe in a corner of it tore our english translations use a a different word which obscures the connection between that chapter and this but it's the same word it's the corner of his robe and it tore and samuel turns around and says this is symbolic of how the lord has torn the kingdom away from you and given it to your neighbor so this is not just David getting something to demonstrate, look, you were in my hand and I let you go. Although even with that, there is the implied threat of violence. That is part of what I think strikes David to the heart. But another part of it is what he chose to take was symbolically taking the office from Saul. It would be like Um, a lieutenant commander on a ship who'd been thrown in the brig, right? Or he manages to get out and he catches the captain sleeping and he cuts the end of the captain's sleeve off, taking the captain's insignia, right? That's the significance of David's action. It's not just to say, look how close I got to you but I didn't do anything. It's also implying this is mine and I can take it when I want it. 
That's why David is cut to the heart. He realizes how close he came to combating Saul with Saul's methods. Because what's hanging in the balance there in that moment, in that cave, is with taking the kingship, so with ruling as king, will David do it God's way? Or will David turn out to be another king like Saul? But he didn't take the whole road. And he took a corner of it, and when he became king, he was only a corner of the, the, of the whole thing. He was only over Judah initially. Yeah. I don't get, even though Saul was occupied, I don't get how he didn't notice that there are multiple men having a discussion about his well-being that close to him. It was a really big cave. Sound travels in a cave, though. Yeah. He was really naive. He couldn't figure out about Michael. He couldn't figure out about Jonathan. I mean, you know. That's probably what it was. He didn't have somebody there telling him what was going on. Because <laughs> that seems to be the standard for Saul at this point. Things can be happening right in front of him, but if there's nobody there to tell him, he doesn't know what's going on. I wonder if there's a connection. I mean, just there's so much about they ripped their garments, you know, when they had struggles in the Old Testament passage of the call. And then, of course, at the crucifixion, the curve rent. I think there's something different happening with the crucifixion because the veil that's rent, and it's rent from top to bottom, not from the bottom to the top, and that's an important detail, is the thing that separated the priests, right, the people in the temple from the Holy of Holies. So that division is done away with by what happens on the cross. Uh, it seems some of the time Saul, Saul has to be told, isn't David there? And it sounds like everybody knows it, but everybody doesn't know it. Yeah. In fact, like they know David's address at the beginning of the chapter. Right? We mentioned at, at the end of the last chapter that in the strongholds of Engedi, where he is, like that's on the western border of the Dead Sea. And so um, when they say in verse 2 that he's in front of the wild goat's rocks, in front of probably means to the east of. And there's not a whole lot of room between Engedi and the Dead Sea, which basically means they've got a street address. Right? They know which house he's in. But Saul doesn't. And he still can't take advantage of, of knowing that. David still gets the jump on it. So you're right. There's still a whole lot of that. Everyone but Saul knows where David is. Sometimes exactly where David is. And even when they lead Saul to where he is, Saul is not able to take advantage of it. Yeah, it's all back to the six hundred why didn't David have any centuries of, I mean, have the enemy just, you're back in a cave and the enemy just walk in? Maybe it was a, I, I suspect it was a really deep cave. Or maybe um, they were warned and yeah. got quiet or something. Maybe they just had declined to engage yet. Didn't want to draw attention. Fascinating thing to me, all these amazing events and proximity and trying to get all the pictures and imaginations of all these men and all. David comes out there and lays down, or lies down, I don't know the verb, excuse me. <laughs> I'm not going to use the other word. And, and Saul, Saul 
weeps, weeps in what seems to be, in my non-seminary review, a true repentant condition. Yeah. I mean, we've heard all this before. And the other thing that I think, yeah, the other thing I think is interesting is that David says that uh, I have wronged you, but you're hunting me down. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. So he's kind of throwing this at Saul, but that Saul doesn't respond negatively to that, which. You know, he had such an ego and such a pride. I'm just surprised. So, of course, that's providence. But <laughs> yeah. But it's just I would have expected Saul to have a much more negative response to that. But then he goes and says all that, that whether it's yep. sincere or not. Yep. In between that and what we've just been talking about, right? David goes through this struggle, and then he gets to his confrontation with Saul. What happens in between? Right, David cuts off the corner of Saul's robe, and then he's struck to the heart, and then what, what happens in verse 6? He's feeling guilty. He feels guilty. Um, verse 7, does anybody have the New American Standard? Rebuked. Yep. Yeah, and uh, there's a footnote there. Uh, do you happen to have the footnote for that? No. Okay. Tore apart is the word there which seems really, really odd, and it's not a very common word. And so in the Greek, they seem to have guessed, and they said persuaded, because that's how it seems to go. Right? From one perspective, David's waffling about what to do with Saul. Do I stretch out my hand against him? Do I keep my hand back? Like, how do I handle this? I'm the Lord's anointed, but he's the Lord's anointed too. And he... He crawls out to do something to Saul, but he comes back just with a piece of fabric. And his men are watching this, and his men have told him, right, this is your chance to get him, right? The Lord has opened the door for you. You just need to walk through it, David. Um, there's a, there's a wordplay going on in the Hebrew text. It's, but because the word is rare, some of the early translators weren't sure what to do with it and reading the, the wider context, they understood it as David persuaded his men. But in fact, David's actions and words are causing division among his men as they're struggling with what it means to follow David's leadership in this moment. And the wordplay going on has to do with he's, he's torn Saul's robe and now he's tearing his men, because this, this division is opening up in the ranks about those who think David's made the wise choice and those who think David's made a poor one. And that's going to continue to develop over the next couple of chapters. I could understand their, their point of view. It's like, are you soft or something? You know, weak? I, I, I totally get the men. I really do. Well, it's, it's a topic that would probably be great for knowing God's will. I mean, really. Here's a guy who had the big picture. And the men, well-intentioned, were wrong. Yep. Of course, half of them think David's wrong. 
But, you know, if you always make the, the good and wise and godly decision, everybody will immediately see that and agree with you, right? Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, these are warriors. Oh, yeah. yeah they're not just the Mamby Pamby sit home and do whatever. These guys are like, go get them. I mean, they and, you know, they've been fighting Philistines and all kinds of people. So, you know. We killed their friends. Yeah. And then this ties into his confrontation with Saul, with this question of the monarchy and how David is going to achieve it. Right? Will it be through God's means or not? It's the Lord who has created a situation where there are two Lords anointed at the same time. And so will David entrust the resolution of that to the Lord? Or will he try and just take care of it himself? Would you be right. singing now, trust it, I'll wait for the So he confronts Saul, right? And his men get to see how powerful that little piece of fabric is. As he comes out and lays on his face and, and is able right, to, to move from uh, a place of recognizing Saul's position to bringing that into intimacy and pleading with him. And showing him not just, look, I had the opportunity to dispatch you, and I chose not to. But to draw a connection to that, to his attitude, posture, behavior towards Saul more generally. And he, he, can, he repeatedly asks Saul to consider. He doesn't just say stuff. It's not just show and tell. He repeatedly asks Saul to consider. Right? As soon as Saul turns around, he says in verse 9, Why do you listen to the words of men who say? And notice he's phrased that in a way that allows Saul to save face too. Because the implication is that others are influencing you to see things in this light. Is, is that honest? I mean, or is David kind of fudging that a little bit because he knows it's really Saul's own wacky thinking? That's a good question. Uh, I think we could say at the least, David is choosing to present it in the best light possible and to believe the best about Saul, at least in what he says out loud, despite Saul's actions. We know more about Saul in his internal thought process and even what he said in the presence of others than probably David does. So perhaps David is being particularly generous. I don't know that he's necessarily being disingenuous, but that is a good question. But in this phrasing, he, he continually calls upon him to consider, why do you listen? Right? This day you have seen, right? See this, see this. And then we come to, right, in the goes for a few things, and then who, who are you chasing after? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A single flea? But in the midst of that, we have that um, 
may the Lord judge between me and you that you mentioned, Margaret. Uh, This, I think, is a really helpful chapter to read against the Psalms. Because we have a whole group of Psalms that say things that we feel like we can't say out loud. Right? Oh, Lord, break the teeth of the wicked. We got, a, we got a special word for these psalms. They're called imprecatory psalms. Psalms that call on God, not just to deliver the psalmist, but to punish or curse the psalmist's enemies. We read, we feel those things in our hearts, but we would never say those things out loud. And we feel like the psalmist is wrong to do that. But if the one who wrote those things and uttered those things before the Lord behaves this way in the face of opportunity against one who's demonstrated himself to be an enemy, that I think gives us a different angle on those Psalms. Because in the language of the Psalms and in the action of the ones who wrote them, he is squarely and resolutely placing the matter in God's hands. In other words, in those Psalms, he's not praying for a chance to take care of that himself. I mean, he had that here. He didn't do it. He lets that rest with the Lord, which also presents the opportunity for the Lord to change his heart toward his enemies. But that's a far better thing to do than to have those um, feelings, thoughts, all of those things toward one's enemies and to suppress them and refuse to acknowledge them and not bring them into the light of God as avenger and judge. That's something I'd like to explore more, not necessarily this evening, but I think this chapter is very helpful for thinking about how to approach those kinds of Psalms. We mentioned already, but just to highlight again, David is characterizing his entire disposition and history of action toward Saul, right? Why do you listen to the words of man who say, David seeks your harm? Behold, right? I don't clearly like, look at what happened. Verse 11, right? Um, For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge. Out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. But notice the reservation and the restricted nature of Saul's response in verse 17 you are more righteous than i for you have repaid me good whereas i have repaid you evil and you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me and that you did not kill me when the lord put me into your hands right so may the lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day right Saul's acknowledgement of David's disposition toward him, of David's blamelessness toward him is restricted to this interaction. 
It admits of no reflection on prior action. And he's clearly concerned about what David's actions might be toward him and toward his house in the future. So he speaks of the Lord resolving it and the Lord being judge between them and the Lord reward you. But his worry betrays the fact that either he doesn't trust David or he doesn't trust the Lord or both, which feeds into the uneasy parting at the end of the chapter. Paul goes back home, although he'll be back. And David, knowing that, goes back into the stronghold and probably posts lookouts so he can be ready the next time. What do we learn? What do we take away from this chapter? God's in control. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So if God opens a door for you to slay your enemy, walk through that door in full confidence and stick it to him, right? Not to bring Hollywood into this, but the Saving Private Lion had a scene where they captured this Nazi, this band of brothers. And the big discussion was, do we, do we keep him as a prisoner of war or do we kill him? And ultimately, they liberated him. They let him go. Did not keep him as a prisoner of war or kill him. And then, not to spoil the movie, if those... Yeah, movies, spoiler alert. The very enemy that they liberated kills the hero of the show at the very end of the show. And so, you know, I know this is not comparison at all, but, you know, this Nazi is not Saul, and this Nazi is not a king, but, I mean, this notion of how to deal with enemies. Well, and this is the reason for the division among David's men, Right? Because the straightforward, no question, super obvious military decision. There's no question. Dispatch Saul. Do it right now. Do it right here. And this whole thing is done. Just like a couple of chapters earlier, when Kayla was in trouble because the Philistines were coming, the straightforward, no questions asked, nothing to worry about, only smart military decision was to stay as far away from that as you can because there is no reason to have the Philistines and Saul chasing us I mean it's bad enough it's like God has delivered it to you take him yeah instead of rendering his garment render his head yeah he's busy anyway (laughs) well that's, that's a continual prayer for all of us to be so synchronized with the Father that wonderfully intentioned counsel and advice from war-rugged bands of men uh, was the following. What, what is that still small voice saying? Yeah. This touches on wider ethical questions, which we can resolve in the next 15 minutes, right? Um, about how to treat our enemies What does it mean to be wise as serpents while being innocent as doves? If our our weapons, right, if our warfare is not with flesh and blood, what do we do when we have flesh and blood enemies? And we're worried about the safety of body as well as soul, right? What do you do if the Gestapo comes knocking on your door and asks, where are the Jews? 
And I'll, I'll just tip my hand and say I, I would land on the side of those who's going to lie while holding a firearm behind my back and take it up with a merciful God. We have a longer conversation about that. But David, again, right, and this, this comes down to one of the fundamental things, I think, to take away from this chapter, aside from the whole discussion of God's directing of things in the midst of all of the human action, is that it's very, so very important to know God's word so that we can make our decisions in accordance with his word and not in accordance with our circumstances. Don't you think that's why David never would have killed Saul? He never did kill Saul because he couldn't. In other words, Saul was killed in battle. So it was, David had opportunity, but he just did not, which to me is, is restraint, I guess is what I want to say. We'll highlight that again when we come to the end of 1 Samuel. The Lord intervenes even in the preparation for that battle to prevent a situation from coming about where David and Saul would have faced each other on that battlefield because David was there and then is sent away. All right, it's getting dark. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to, to read it, to discuss it, to ponder it, to connect it, to earlier and later passages, to consider it in light of other parts of your word and in light of our own lives and our own actions. Lord, we pray that you would teach us your word, that you would enlighten us, that you would illumine our hearts, that as we read and study and consider, so you would help us to know more of your word that we might treasure it more, that we might keep it more faithfully, that we might direct our steps according to it. We ask these things in Jesus' name, trusting that by his word, you are forming us more and more into his image. Amen. You've been listening to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for more teaching and for our current schedule of events if you'd like to drop in. We pray this recording has been a blessing to you. Go in peace.